you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 10. Turn to Acts chapter 10. You ever find yourself stuck in life? It just seems like anything you're doing, you feel stuck. That project you wanted to get done at home hasn't been finished for months. That goal of reading 20 books ended after one. That desire to be the better parent failed when you saw how much the kids were yapping back at you this last week. You see, many of us, we have what we call the being stuck or in a rut moments. What happens to many of us is that when we get stuck, we don't keep going. We give up. We quit. And what ends up happening is there's no follow through in our lives. One of the things that's difficult for many of us is to take an honest assessment of why it is that we're stuck. You see, many of us know we're stuck, but sometimes don't realize the reason behind why we're stuck. And some of that reason boils down to one thing that I think most of us have a hard time pronouncing. There's this thing called perseverance in life that all of us as believers need. There's a follow-through that needs to happen because if there's no follow-through, we'll never make it to the end of what it is we're trying to accomplish. As we look at the early church, we see that God moves in the lives of Peter and John, and as they're spreading the gospel message to those around, God specifically deals with Peter in a private manner through a vision, as we discussed last week. And he sends him on a quest to find Cornelius. He doesn't find him on his own. Cornelius is sent to him with his messengers. And as many times what happens is the message does not stop there. There is a follow-through that occurs, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We went through these three things last week, and we're going to finish with the last three today. We went through the instruction last week in verses 1 through 8. We looked at the vision, verses 9 through 16. Number three, we looked at the invitation, verses 17 through 23. This morning we're going to look at the connection, which is number four, 24 through 33. The message, verses 34 through 43. And number six, the follow-through, which is 44 through 48. So let's start with number four, the connection, verses 24 through 33. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found, out, found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation? But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here 
whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Just to recap a couple things that we discussed last week, there's a vision that's given to Cornelius with an angel telling him to find the apostle Peter, who will give him further instructions on what he must do before God. We also discussed the fact that centurions are mentioned throughout Scripture, and more than likely, a centurion's in charge of about 100 soldiers in a band of possibly 600 or more. What's interesting is that we see great encounters throughout Scripture of those that are centurions. Most of them have great encounters with Christ or come to saving faith or have a great demonstration of faith when it comes to healing by just trusting that Jesus will heal the servant. Cornelius here is a Gentile who had participated in many of the Jewish practices of that day, possibly with the exception of circumcision. But as Cornelius is praying, we mentioned this last week, God sends him an angel to tell him to find Peter, who specifically gets a vision as they're traveling to see him. God works those things out providentially to happen around the same time. And God specifically deals with Peter by sending him a picture that he doesn't fully understand at first. It's a sheet with many animals that are considered unclean to the Jewish culture. And he tells him to go ahead and kill and eat. And Peter responds with a rejection of that, assuming that this is not something he should be doing. He's met with a response that says, if I've considered this clean, if I've made this clean, you should accept this. And he saw that vision repeated three times, and then it was taken up into heaven. Just as, P- as Peter is still wondering about this whole vision, he's visited by the men of Cornelius, who ask him to go see Cornelius with them. And this is where we're at in the, in the text. Here's some interesting things to consider as we look at this. Right when they meet one another, Cornelius does something very interesting. Cornelius bows down to the ground, and as Scripture says, proceeds to worship Peter. Peter responds simply by picking him back up and saying, you know what, I'm just a man, just like you. There's a very important point of application that I think is missed when we read texts like this. Just because someone is a messenger delivering the word of God to you does not mean that you and I are are to bring them up on a pedestal with Christ. There are are many men that have been worshipped by many church members, unknowingly so. For their strong stand for truth... And many believers almost giving them godlike status in the community. This ought not be in the church, believers. In fact, many in the church are not aware of him today because they're not really familiar with a lot of past theologians, preachers, and maybe even evangelists. But Billy Sunday was a big shot in the 1800s. He was what the equivalent of Billy Graham would be to many of us today. Listen to this excerpt from a commentary on Billy Sunday's life, lest you and I want to elevate a person to godlike status that is a follower of God. Listen to this. Billy Sunday has been called by some the most spectacular evangelist since John the Baptist. 
Born in 1862 on a farm in Ames, Iowa, Billy spent much of his youth in an orphanage. He excelled as an athlete and was drafted by the Chicago White Sox. But God had other plans for Billy. One evening as he was passing by the Pacific Garden Mission, he heard gospel singers sing his mother's favorite song, Where's My Wandering Boy Tonight? His heart broke and he went inside. It was that night that Billy's life was changed forever when he accepted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. It wasn't long until God called Billy to preach. He started out preaching the gospel in every place where he first met the Lord, the Pacific Garden Mission. Billy Sunday had no trouble drawing a crowd. He had engagements to preach in just about every major city in America. It is estimated that he preached to over 100 million people and that almost 1 million individuals accepted Christ through his ministry. But while his preaching ministry was thriving, his home life was left struggling. Traveling, preaching, and ministering left little time for his children. He neglected to block away time for his family and especially his growing sons. There wasn't any heart-to-heart -heart relationship between him and his sons. After some time, it was apparent that his boys were doing and living everything Billy was preaching against. While Billy was a devout Christian, his sons were not. The family was disconnected and falling apart. Two years before Billy died, his eldest son, George, committed suicide. I say this as a warning to all of us, believer. Don't put people on a pedestal that only Christ deserves. The greatest men that you revere and read their books are just men, as Peter says here in this text. They're not worthy of worship. Your favorite preacher is not worthy of worship. Your favorite author is not worthy of worship. Some of us think way too highly of the theologians that we respect without seeing the flaws in their life. By the way, let me encourage you with something too, believer. Your favorite heroes in the Bible have quite a few flaws themselves. The difference is we know about them. What we've done with a lot of theologians of our day, we've sanctified them beyond what they are. We've hidden what they really had as flaws in their life. What's great about the Bible is it gives us the good, the bad, and the ugly of people like King David. And yet, what happens with many of us that we read our books from theologians that we respect and cherish, we see them through only one lens. We tend to think they're almost at the status of the Apostle Paul and his scripture writing. You need to be able to see the strengths and weaknesses of the people that you respect, believer. Some of us read, and I know I've been doing this before, some of us read the Puritans and think they were more faithful than the nation of Israel. Listen, believer, they were li living borderline legalism at times. In fact, it was blatant legalism. You as a believer need more than just a man or woman to look up to. You need to connect to Christ directly. People like Peter are just the tool that God uses 
to bring others to saving faith. Peter didn't go there to establish his book that he wrote. Peter was there to share Christ. If a certain author or theologian is necessary for you to find yourself closer to Christ, then you've put too much stock in them. If you need Spurgeon to get you closer to Christ automatically, then you've put too much stock in them. Scripture alone is what the Reformation stated, and yet a lot of people don't practice that. This is all you need for your faith and practice, believer. Those are great supplements. They don't replace the truth. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't read them and get benefited by their ministry. What I am saying is don't put them on the pedestal that many times we put them on, that later on when we find out something doesn't go right, oh man, they come crashing down in our hearts. That idol is crushed in our hearts. Peter is simply available and God uses him. In fact, God is the one that initiated this whole connection between him and Cornelius. Believer, if there's one thing you can't deny in this text is God does the sending. This wasn't happenstance what occurred. Both men were connected by God himself. He gives the increase. We are simply to be available for him to use. Here's what's also interesting in this text. Notice what Cornelius does. Look at the text. He brings many who had come together with him. So Cornelius is already wanting others to hear what he's about to hear. He found this so urgent that he wanted others to hear and be in on this conversation that he had with Peter. He couldn't help but compel others to join him. Now what's even interesting, and you see this part right here in the, in the text, that really Peter finally connects the vision. Peter makes the connection to the vision. He realizes that God had broken down the barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles when it comes to the saving faith in Messiah. It was not good for the Jewish community to fellowship with the Gentiles because of their dietary laws. And Peter realized through this vision that was given to him that God done away with that and said, you should, and you should give them Yeshua. You were considered ceremoniously unclean to the Jewish believer, at least initially. Peter realizes that he has no right to refuse to meet with Cornelius as God has declared him clean. Peter makes himself available to answer any question that Cornelius has. What I love in this last part of the text is Cornelius tells Peter that they are all ears, and whatever it is that God commands, he's willing to hear. Man, wouldn't that be nice? To go to somebody that doesn't know God well, and they're just like, you just lay it on me. What does God say? What should I do? What an encounter. Man, I wish it was that easy. By the way, Peter didn't have those encounters every time. So, lest you think that this was an always occurrence with Peter, you might want to realize he died 
hung, uh, on, a, on a cross upside down at the end. So it didn't go well at the end, if you will, from a prosperity gospel mentality that many people have today. Number five, the message. Verses 34 through 43. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed together throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism, which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Peter states one thing that should be clear. God does not show partiality when it comes to those that fear Him. When someone fears God, though not fully understanding who it is that they worship, God sends them more light. You see that. God requires faith in Jesus Christ, as we see in verse 43, that through His name there is remission or cancellation, if you will, of sin. Peter, as a Jewish man, now understood the gospel of Jesus Christ was not necessarily exclusive to the Jews only. But God intended for it to reach the Gentiles as well. He declared them clean as access for all. Listen to this point mentioned by Constable in his commentary regarding this text. Its three main emphasis are... First, that the message to follow was a presentation of revelation that God had sent to the Jews. Second, it was a message resulting in peace that comes through Jesus Christ. Third, Jesus Christ is Lord of all, both Jews and Gentiles. Lord of all was a pagan title for deity which the Christians adopted as an appropriate title for Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all expressed Peter's new insight. It is probably the main statement in the verse. Since Jesus is Lord over all, Peter could proclaim to Cornelius and other Gentiles that the gospel is available to all. This is one of the most central points in Luke and Acts. You see, Peter is connecting the dots to the vision and his meeting with Cornelius and telling him, Jesus' exorcism of demons and his death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ revealed that he was available to all. That he was to be shared with the Gentiles. Peter and the rest of the apostles were still hesitant to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. But what God had done here was make it abundantly clear to Peter that the gospel is to go out to the Gentiles as well. 
How many instructions have you and I been given that we haven't followed the first time? How about the second time? How about the third time? How about the fourth time? Some of us have been instructed certain things 20 times and we still haven't done them. Lest you go harsh on people not following through what God says, you might want to look at your own life. There are many things God dictates for us in this word that we ignore and we say, no, I'll deal with that later, I'll apply it later. That's for them to apply, not me. If you've ever had a problem in relationships with other people, we tend to go really quick to God is on my side in this debate. It's a very dangerous place to be, believer. Very dangerous place to be. Because I'll tell you right now, if there's one thing that you should pay attention to, that both in an argument between Christians should pay attention to, is Satan is the one that sows the discord among brethren. And what ends up happening many times is we fall right into the trap. And what's harder for many of us, and we see that many of us don't appreciate what Scripture tells us that we ought to do many times. We think that God's commandments are there to ruin our lives, if you will. God's just not going to give me any joy if I have to follow this path of moral code that he wants for my life. Before I get married, I should not do these things. What? He wants me to be wise with my money. Why? Look at how everybody else in the world lives. They just get into a bunch of debt too. Listen, a lot of the instruction in Scripture don't make sense at first, but if you've lived them out, you see the results. You see the results. And what you see here is that Peter may not have appropriately uh, applied himself when it comes to what Jesus had clearly revealed to him that he ought to do. But as happens to many of us, God hits us square right in the forehead and says, you pay attention. This is what I intended for you to understand. And that's what happens here with the Apostle Peter. Many of us have to be told multiple times what God wants us to do. And we deny that. But if we were to look through the landscape of our lives, for those of us that have followed Christ for any amount of time, we know that certain things we didn't start applying until a few years later after hearing the first instruction. One of the hardest things, I think, for believers to do is when they read the Bible to start assuming that they would make the same sinful choices or mistakes that other people make. Believer, you've made many of those decisions this last week and just didn't want to own it. He was commanded by Christ to preach the gospel. Disciple of Jesus Christ, you've been commanded to preach the gospel as well. This isn't um, option A or option B. There's only one option, and it's commanded. Preach the gospel. Just because you don't have the same nationality as someone else does not mean that you're not obligated to reach them with the gospel. Jesus Christ is to be shared with everyone around you without any partiality. Think of the person you don't want to share it with and realize that you ought to share it with them. There are so many people that are hard for me to pray for because I see the wickedness that they live. But God commands me to pray for them. He commands that I pray for their salvation. 
You think many of us believers don't realize that there are a lot of people in positions of authority in government that we know don't hold to our worldview? It's a very dicey situation. In some things, I believe there should be a righteous disobedience. In other areas, there should be a proper righteous response and prayer for those people. One point that's important to mention here is you and I may not get a clear vision like Peter did here, but God has given you and me this word to share with others. And Scripture actually says, this is living and active and powerful. And yet you and I treat it like it's just another book. Be courageous, believer. Jesus conquered sin and death, the two things that many of us are afraid of. Listen to what Spurgeon says about this. I question whether the defenses of the gospel are not sheer impertinences. The gospel does not need defending. If Jesus Christ is not alive and cannot fight his own battles, then Christianity is in a bad state. But he is alive, and we, can only, we have only to preach his gospel in all its naked simplicity. And the power that goes with it will be the evidence of its divinity. Believer, do you know how I know that the word works? Here's how I know that the word works. People in the church that get into the word consistently and faithfully, I start seeing changes in their life. And I haven't even pointed anything out. See, we've looked at the connection and the message, but let's finish this chapter with the follow-through. Number six, the follow-through. Verses 44 through 48. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter. Peter actually had another group that came with them. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Believer, here's how the gospel works. You deliver the message and the Holy Spirit works through that. What's interesting here is that Peter doesn't even give an invitation that most of us are familiar that happen in churches all the time. There's no altar call. There's no sign a card. There's no raise your hand. Peter's speaking the gospel to them and the Holy Spirit just moves. God gave the same Holy Spirit to the Jews and the Gentiles. There's no special ceremony. There's no laying of hands. There's only one requirement here. That's the belief in Jesus Christ. This was a faith alone message that didn't require any external ceremony or rituals. These Gentiles were given the sign of tongues, which was more than likely understood by those that could hear around them. Possibly Aramaic, as one commentator said. 
something Cornelius would have probably not previously known. And Peter would have instantly seen this as a confirmation of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's more than likely that Cornelius doesn't even know what this whole tongues thing was. But the response was one that confirmed to Peter that he was magnifying God. This is a further indicator that this was a supernatural gift, which was a signed gift given to the early church, not previously learned languages that was spoken by those that the Holy Spirit came upon. So how did they know that the Holy Spirit came upon them? There's a phrase right there in the text, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. That's the confirmation. It seems more than one person understood what was happening here, which was a clear indicator that this was a language that others understood. This was not some ecstatic speech. So what's the follow-through on this obvious conversion? Peter commands them to get baptized in the name of Jesus. There's no reason to delay, hold a six-week baptism class, make sure they've understood all the doctrines of faith, circumcise them. There was solid proof that the Holy Spirit had moved, and they ought to be baptized. The next step, naturally, was baptism. The sole entry into the church which Christ redeemed is Jesus Christ and faith in Him alone. The Holy Spirit has been given to every believer in Jesus Christ. As a disciple of Jesus Christ for about 20 years, I want to stress the importance of baptism for those who have not yet been baptized. To those that have been baptized, there's a seriousness that is lacking in the church today and what it means to identify with Christ. I have seen many baptisms growing up. And I've seen some of them turn into what I call utter foolishness. And frankly, blasphemy before God. Because it was cute and funny. J.C. Ryle makes this statement. He says, we ought to regard the sacrament of baptism with reverence. An ordinance of which the Lord Jesus himself partook is not to be lightly esteemed. An ordinance to which the great head of the church submitted ought to be ever honorable in the eyes of professing Christians. You see, so many in the church have forgotten those sacred moments in their life. When they committed themselves to Christ. And those of us that have aligned with him in baptism. Listen, believer, as a church, you should never get over those sacred moments in your life. I can assure you of one thing. Peter never forgot this moment. Cornelius never forgot this moment. In fact, what's amazing is the Holy Spirit decided it was important for us to remember this. So in conclusion... Here's my simple question to all of us. Where's your follow-through? Where's your follow-through, believer? The natural follow-through for Cornelius was baptism. 
If you've not accepted Jesus Christ, let me encourage you to trust him. That should be your first follow-through. You can't jump to the other ones until you do that first thing, which is trusting Christ. The others are not possible without it. Baptism, church attendance, good deeds are all worthless without saving faith in Jesus Christ. They're worthless. They mean nothing. If you have trusted Christ but have not gotten baptized, can I tell you that this is an important step of obedience to Christ? It's important because it's a public display of your commitment to Christ before the world. It's a testimony of the gospel. If you've not been attending church, can I encourage you to come? I know it's been a very difficult season for all of us, but you know who's had it the worst? The ones that have been the most isolated. Don't come to church just to alleviate your problems. Come because fellowship of Christ is that important. Christ wants you in fellowship with his church. It's made up of people that you and I don't always like. But he still wants us to be in fellowship. If you've been attending, are you contributing? Are you giving of your time to reach others with the gospel? Are you giving of your resources to take care of the needs of those around you? Ask yourself the question, are you a giver or a taker when it comes to the local body of Christ? All of us have areas of follow-through that we need to work out. We've all been given the same Holy Spirit if we've trusted Jesus Christ. It's time to listen to what he clearly reveals when we read his word and follow through ourselves. Let's pray.